what you have when we think about narrative and even narrative intelligence, what you have is you have words and you have writings that speak to these grand ideas. And then you have policy and behaviors and practices that do a totally opposite thing. Right. And so if you don't name it, it's confusion. And what you end up with, with, what we have in America in particular, is the mythos of goodness and the mythos of intentionality as a metric. And that's that's dangerous. And we've seen the outputs and outcomes from those dangerous activities over centuries. And mm -hmm. now it's time to name the thing what it is. Mm -hmm. And so we can actively organize around what we want that's the opposite of that. Ready to learn why cash flow and compassion are not mutually exclusive? Each week, brand strategist, speaker, and author Maria Ross will introduce you to the trailblazing brands and leaders who embrace empathetic tactics to reap huge rewards. You'll learn about winning teams, brand wins and fails, unforgettable customer experience, and bold leadership decisions fueled by compassion. You'll get the latest trends and research, discover practical ways to infuse more empathy into your work and life, and hear from innovative market leaders who've smashed outdated models and redefined success. Welcome to the Empathy Edge podcast, the show that proves empathy isn't just good for society, it's great for business. Is it even possible to center humanity in our work and our systems? We've become numb to the fact that so many of our government policies, social programs, and even corporate cultures exist to serve every other purpose but our shared humanity. They fail to acknowledge that humans are complex and that we can't compartmentalize inputs in order to get successful outputs. The solution is to become more developmentally informed, to build systems and cultures that center humanity while still being widely successful and profitable. Ah, yes, the two can coexist, and part of that journey is to examine how we leverage narrative and stories, how we discern where those stories come from, why we subscribe to them, and how they shape our actions, systems, policies, and corporate culture. My guest today, talking about these big concepts, as well as how they're relevant to the future of work, is Michael O'Brien, a practitioner and researcher in the fields of community development, organizational culture, and human well-being. He's a distinguished resident fellow at the Lindy Institute for Urban Innovation at Drexel University, where he's building a research lab focused on the future of work, economic policies, and systems through the lens of developmental science and social equity. Mike is also the founder of Human Nature, a design strategy firm working with a mission of supporting organizations and leaders in centering humanity in the context of their work. Mike shares what it means to be developmentally informed, what shared humanity means, and the real cost of dehumanization. He shares the difference between narrative and story and the influencers of human behavior. We discuss narrative intelligence and how the lack of it can lead to violence and racism like we saw in Buffalo, New York weeks ago, and how all of these concepts relate to the future of work and economic policies and systems. We go deep on this one and we went in a variety of different directions, but I think you'll love the conversation. Let's get connected. If you're loving this content, 
don't forget to go to theempathyedge.com and sign up for the email list to get free resources and more empathy-infused success tips and find out how you can book me as a speaker. I want to hear how empathy is helping you be more successful. So please sign up now at theempathyedge.com. Oh, and follow me on Instagram, where I'm always posting all the things for you at Red Slice Maria. I have been looking forward to this talk with Mike O'Brien for weeks now. Welcome to the Empathy Edge podcast. Oh, thank you so much. What a gift. What a pleasure. And I want to share with folks how you came on my radar because I was introduced to you through the amazing Heather Hiscox, who's been a guest on this show in the past. I'll link to her past episode in the show notes, but she has a wonderful project of webinars and gatherings called the Possibility Project. And you were a guest speaker on one of those talking about narrative intelligence. And, you know, on this show, we talk a lot about social and emotional intelligence. We talk about emotional intelligence, but that was the first time I'd heard that term of narrative intelligence. So I'm really excited to dig into that a little bit, but I want to back us up from that because as, as you mentioned before we started recording, so many of these concepts are, are related. It's a giant Venn diagram. Tell us a little bit about your story and how you got to the work that you're doing around, you know, helping people be more human, be more compassionate, build humanization into the context of their work. Yeah, yeah. Um, huh. It's interesting. I had the term be more human just struck me because uh, sometimes I wonder about the gazer, right? And like, is it in... And so the frame of my work is like constantly oscillating between like, I want to be more human. Then I'm like, well, wait a minute, I am fully human. And it's this lack of recognition by the things outside of me and some of the things inside of me that are suppressing and denying and distorting how that humanity is viewed, how it gets to emerge, how it is supported, nurtured, the whole nine. So that's just a thought that crossed my mind when you said that. (laughs) All that being said, how I got here, theater, stories, like I was working in stories. Theater, woo! Yeah. (laughs) I was working in stories as a young person, very fortunate to get theater training very young and very fortunate to do professional theater starting at the age of 14 all the way to 18. Um, and, And being situated in the experiences of others, like the methodologies that were being used in a lot of the theater projects that I was a part of centered other people's experiences and voices and stories and the impacts that these things would have on them. And so that was a huge part of the work and a huge manner of I, I practicing curiosity, right? Like I got to practice curiosity. Right. And- well, you get to be other people too through, you know, I, I found those were my earliest lessons on empathy was empathizing with a character who maybe was completely not like you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and finding ways where you're again, touching aspects of your humanity and their humanity that you might not be able to understand. So it's that compassionate interrogation piece, right? Um, Ruth Langmore, you know, I was watching Ozark recently and like Ruth Langmore is such a fascinating character because I grew up very poor as well. Um, And I would have never thought that a, a, a poor white woman in Appalachia 
as an adolescent and I would have a number of things in common. And so there were these moments where I was yeah. like, oh, that's so random that we have this thing yeah. in common. I mean, I was in common, excuse me. And I would say another thing and be like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> and it just, it was great. It was another reminder of like humanity is complex and so layered. So mm -hmm. these stories, these things, that's that's what got me here. And then I became obsessed with science and people and like, how do we work? So that, yeah. that led me on a path. Absolutely. And now you're the founder of Human Nature, a design strategy firm. And you are, you know, as we read in the intro, you're supporting organizations and leaders in centering humanity in the context of their work. Yeah. Can you explain to us what that means to center humanity in the context of your work and give us an yeah. example? Sure. Yeah. So. Uh, short answer, organizations are typically organized and socialized to center everything else, uh, you know, outside of the humanity of their stakeholders, be they internal or external. So we center the funders, we center the outputs, the outcomes, we center the timelines, the bureaucracy, the constraints, the politics of the day. I mean, we, we center yeah. everything else. All of it. And then later on, we're like, I need these really human-centered outcomes, but I have no... <laughs> Resources well, and that, and like what we're experiencing now, like why are my people leaving? We're doing yes, we're doing right. we're doing so well. Everyone's performing. I don't understand. You know, yeah. And folks are like, you know what? My humanity matters more than this check. So I'd rather go drive for Uber and take a pay cut. But the return in value of these other um, things that we could put valuation to um, that are outside of finances, you know, really does matter. And that is a huge part of the work. That is a mm -hmm. huge part of what we help people understand. But that is that's the great resignation in a, in a nutshell, right? It exactly. is claiming their humanity back and going, no, 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 no. Yeah. Not for a check. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you how do you help them center humanity? Like what what does that look like? What's a before and after? <laughs> Great question. So uh, in terms of what does it look like in general, it looks like people having to learn what I like to call the mechanics of our humanity, right? I'm not here to make you, or our firm's not here to make you an expert in human development, but what we are here to do is help you get the right corners on the puzzle of what it is, right? And so from that context, we use frames. I'm a systems guy. Systems speak in the language of behavior, not outputs and outcomes. You know, I've, I've heard that from a number of really great uh, systems theorists and, uh, you know, organizational cultural specialists. And I really love that phrasing because you can focus so much on having the right language around your outputs and outcomes that you don't focus on the behaviors that are supposed to produce those things. Cause you can get all, if you think about a logic model for those of us that have to use those crazy things, um, they're helpful, but you know, they, they're, also a problem in and of themselves. We weaponize them against groups of people all the time. But you can get all the outputs and outcomes wrong, you know, the right side of the logic model. You can get all of that wrong, have the right inputs, the right assumptions lifted up, and the right activities and produce the right outputs and outcomes, even if they're not on that page. But the inverse is not true, right? You mm. cannot have the wrong activities and produce the right outcomes that doesn't interesting. work. Right? Interesting. Interesting. So this is a lot of what I mean around like centering the humanity. You gotta center this in the fact that humans behave. We do things. We don't do things. And there are a number of levers of uh, pressure points of 
influencers that are close in the in the language of human ecologists we would say it's proximal it's close to us mm -hmm. and then there are things that are very distal and distant but they're all having an influence on us so we help people again getting the corners on the puzzle of these things we just help give them some systems-based frames like the health sciences model of human development we talk about social ecological theory but i'm using language that's a little more close to people right we use I mind the wisdom of experience. People live in these systems. We've been living in them since we were born. There's an experiential knowledge and wisdom that you have of navigating living in systems that are embedded in systems and systems and other systems. Mm -hmm. There's an experiential knowledge and wisdom you have of, of occupying multiple identities and having stressors across those things collide and you still have to go to work and raise your kids and do this and do. Exactly. So and that's that realization that's happening now is that we you know, and I, I have admitted this on this show that, you know, when I was in my twenties, I was very much like there was personal Maria and there was work Maria. Right. Mm -hmm. But if we've learned anything from the pandemic and seeing people on zoom in their own homes with their kids and their dogs and in their bedrooms and in their home offices, that line is blurring and it should blur because you don't park your humanity at the door. When you go into an office, like there, it, is there really a difference between work life and home life? Shouldn't you have the same values? You have the same behaviors, the same personality traits. Shouldn't what's happening in the world culturally, socially, in the news impact you as a human being when you sit down at your desk, desk to do data entry or you sit down at your desk to do a collaboration with a colleague? And I think that realization is, is finally happening for people. Do you see that happening too? Absolutely. Because to, to your point of like, shouldn't it, I challenge people and go, it does. It doesn't matter whether or not you want to believe it. Whether right? you want it or not. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's happening. It's yeah. What it is, right? Yeah. And this is why I go back to the idea of the mechanics of our humanity. There are places and spaces, if you will, in, in that context of like, how do I want to impact people? Well, we just have it all wrong. Like, so for example, with the health sciences model of human development, it says that humans develop in four dimensions that are co-occurring, they're happening at the same time, and they're dynamic, they're influencing one another. That's bio the biological, the psychological, the social, and the fourth is spiritual, but spiritual is, in this context, not uh, based on theology or religion, it's about the dimension of meaning making, that humans are creatures of meaning making, and we will make meaning even when it's not supplied to us. This is where we get into the bias area of mm -hmm. life and all the things we're mm -hmm. talking about in the 21st century. So the context here, I think for folks is to recognize and realize you actually don't get the choice or option of saying things like, or uh, let me rephrase that, you can say whatever you want. You don't get the option of like true impact and control in the context of I'm a teacher or I'm an employee or a manager and I don't want to have an impact on somebody's biological well-being today. I'm just going to affect their psychological well-being or their psychological development. That's right. not how that works. You don't have that choice. Right. But we do have the choice on how we impact somebody's psychological development or their social well-being or whatever you know construct we want to lay on top of the fact that we develop in these four categories mm -hmm. so we have a it's, it's about how not if mm -hmm. which means that we have to pay attention to the environments 
that we're developing in because those environments are biological, psychological, social, mm -hmm. and spiritual or in the dimension of our meaning making. So when we center humanity in the context of our work, it is the recognition that, to your point, should, mm -mm, it does. So Maria coming to work with a sick child, there is something that is happening to her in the form of stress, in the form of care and concern that is going to impact her work. That's normal. There are no magic thresholds. I call out a thing in my workshops all the time. There is no such thing as magic threshold theory. You don't get to cross a threshold and divorce yourself from the cares of the world. But right. we socialize that with school-age children and then that metastasizes over time and we grow up with this expectation and work. And that those are all fallacies and lies. And we are finally like, it's like the Wizard of Oz, we're like pulling the curtain back and going, oh gosh, is that how this really works? So have you seen the show Severance? No. So yes, because the whole premise of that show is that your memory is erased when you come to work. There's a, there's a company, a corporation that exists. So you actually don't know what your life is outside of the building. And when you leave, you don't know what you've done at work. Wow. It's a, it's a contract you sign when you work with this company. And I, I only got, it's, it's really good. People have seen more of the episodes. I've only gotten through two because it's relentless tension, <laughs> but I can't remember. I'll have to look it up and put a link in the show notes. I can't remember if it's Netflix or Amazon prime, but you need to check it out because it's exactly that point where there's a, a fictitious organization that's created this model where they can separate what people do outside. So when you leave work, you don't even know who your coworkers are. You wow. might see them in the real world and you don't know that they're your coworkers. It's that like a, is frightening. I know, right? It's like a chip <laughs> they implant or something. Um, but I want to get to this idea of... Um, well, first I want to back up because what you're talking about, do you solve that issue or help solve that issue for organizations through training? Is it through policy and organizational redesign? Is it's it, how do you solve that? Yeah. So it's a, it's all of it. Right. And what I mean by all of it is everybody's on a different journey and at a different place. You can't redesign with knowledge you don't have. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is a learning journey. So we believe in any work that is centered in, you know, the, what I call the common new language of DEI, REI, belongingness at work, et cetera. Any of that stuff has to be centered in a culture of learning at the organization that's sustainable mm. or none of that works. Right. Because to, there's a great phrase that I'm, I'm not sure who originated it. I've seen it now ascribed to a couple of different folks. Um, but I will say this, it's definitely not mine and I'd be happy to get you the note. <laughs> it's all good. Just say, yeah. I'm finding so, most of the quotes that we take for granted from people are actually falsely ascribed <laughs> to those famous people. Yeah. So it's a quote that says diversity is a fact. Equity is a choice. Inclusion is an activity and belongingness is an outcome. And I love it because it's such a simple statement that allows people to have their own like little personal logic model theory. Oh my of gosh, that's brilliant. That Isn't that beautiful? Can you I say that one? Can you say that one more time for us? Yeah. Diversity is a fact. Inclusion, excuse me, equity is a choice. Inclusion is an activity and belongingness is an outcome. Oh, so good. Beautiful. And yeah. 
But this starts with the idea, and I loved my my favorite phrase. Oh, let's play guessing games real quick. Which one of those phrases do you think is my favorite? Probably. I think um, was it was it inclusion as an act. It's that I love. I do love that one. Yeah. Diversity is a fact. And that's actually pretty powerful. Like we shouldn't be arguing about <laughs> if there's a thing called diversity. It just is. The natural, I use a lot of um, the the ecological world that's non-human as a space of wisdom and processing. And mm -hmm. I the science of it, the, mm -hmm. how do self-organizing biological systems work? What is the, 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 the method to the madness there, right? It seems, if you just don't think hard about it, it seems like, oh, it's all just kind of chaos and just happening. But you start studying the patterns and you're like, this is bizarre how this is actually organizing mm -hmm. itself. Mm -hmm. And there are, there are um, nuances and and things that we have learned and and you and enhanced our humanity actually mm -hmm. from studying the the biological world that is mm -hmm. you know in air quotes not human um and so that world is hyper diverse mm -hmm. it's also right. hyper collaborative <laughs> i did an episode with james ehrlich who's building the neighborhood of the future mm. and they're building it with the concept of what we can learn from ecology Yes. And how how network systems collaborate without us even realizing it and actually build a neighborhood of the future that is just as collaborative as a forest or a grove. So um, I'll put a link to that one in the show notes, yeah, too. Um, I want to talk about this concept a great of book, if I could. Oh, yeah, go ahead. This came out. It's called The Social Instinct, How Cooperation Shaped the World. I think it came out in 2021. Yeah, August 2021. I'm currently reading. I'm halfway done. Fascinating. Because mm -hmm. what I appreciate about her, same kind of look, looking at ec ecology, looking mm -hmm. at neurology. I mean, she's looking at a million different things. Right. And humans, but she also points out, like, the negative side of collaboration, right? Mm -hmm. That it's like collaboration just is a thing. It can produce positive things, but particularly as humans, we collaborate around some really negative and nasty things too. Mm -hmm. And that's also a part of our humanity. And so centering our humanity in the context of what we do in policy means we have to understand that spectrum. Mm -hmm. Why does dehumanization matter? That's a great follow-up question. You're really good at this. <laughs> Uh, I try. <laughs> dehumanization matters because it is the default practice for so many countries that would be considered part of the, in air quotes, Western world. Mm -hmm. That the construction of, this gets a little technical, but like the construction of the concepts that govern the society in terms of political economy mm -hmm. were not rooted in ideologies that were egalitarian. They were mm -hmm. not about- Or centered this. around people. Yeah. There's no concept of shared humanity in that world and mm -hmm. for them, right? Like mm -hmm. that wasn't a thing. Mm -hmm. And so what you have when we think about narrative and even narrative intelligence, what you have is you have words and you have writings that speak to these grand ideas, and then you have policy and behaviors and practices that do a totally opposite thing. Right. And so if you don't name it, it's confusion. And what you end up with, what we have in America in particular, is the mythos of goodness and the mythos of intentionality as a metric. And that's, that's dangerous. 
And we've seen the outputs and outcomes from those dangerous activities over centuries. And mm -hmm. now it's time to name the thing what it is. Mm -hmm. And so we can actively organize around what we want that's the opposite of that. So right. for me, it's dehumanization at one end of the spectrum, and that dehumanization gives rise and root to ableism, sexism, racism, classism, nationalism, homophobia, transphobia, you know, we can go down that list. And the opposite end of the spectrum is a simple term that I use in my own work and practice called shared humanity. But that's a, it's a journey to get from one end of that spectrum to mm -hmm. the other, which is where in, in my work, I talk about just transitions and just systems of transitions. I'm not the originator of that idea or concept. Mm -hmm. it, have used this the climate change world you know right. activists use this terminology too but i just adopted in my world with, with these systems that we, we have to iterate ourselves towards right. what inclusion as an activity looks like because we don't fully right. know so it is an experiment it's a practice and that's to so to your point around what do we do what does it look like well we got to learn some things then we have to design with intentionality understanding mm -hmm. that dehumanization is at the root it's dehumanizing to have to see yourself as a worker and not a human and therefore the stresses of the day if they impact your productivity shame on you that's dehumanizing mm-hmm Mm -hmm. right? And so how do you undo that? How do we reimagine a workforce that is undergirding our the mechanics of our humanity and producing well-being as opposed to one that's completely exploitative and just sucks and mm -hmm. sucks and sucks. If you die in the journey, well, well and I think, in your honor. I think what's so exciting to me and why I wrote the book was that there are so many organizations and leaders that are adopting that lens and they're still succeeding. We, we've had this, we've had this binary that if you are going to center around humanity, that means you're a nonprofit and you're not really making any money, or that means that you're, you're not going to be as competitive as another organization. And we've got so many bold leaders and organizations. And it sounds like the organizations that you work with as well that are like, no, we can, you know, my, my mantra for this show is that cash flow, creativity, and compassion are not mutually exclusive. Absolutely. And I think those leaders and organizations that are doing the work of centering humanity in their models and in their processes and in their systems, they still want success. They're not settling. They still want to thrive. They still want to add value. They still want to make money. And they, they can, it, it's, it's a false choice. We've given ourselves that it has to be one or the other. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the other, <laughs> the other thing is we, there are examples around the globe. Totally. This not working this way or, or, or things not working the way it does in America and people still making money and being productive. You know, Germany right. has been working with a 20 hour work week probably as long as we've been writing think papers about it at this point, right? Like, mm -hmm. I mean, even mm -hmm. maybe even longer, if I'm remembering some mm -hmm. of the documents I've read. And their productivity is not down. Well, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, look at all the countries that provide, like, you know, maternal leave and and family leave and all of that. And they're, they're industrialized countries. Like, they're producing. They have GDP. They're, <laughs> they're doing the things, right? So um, I want to talk about in this concept of of dehumanization mattering. This idea of what it means to be, you talk about what it means to be developmentally informed. 
And that's where we're going to dive down to the concept that caught my attention, which is narrative intelligence. But what does it mean to be developmentally informed and why does it matter? Yeah. So I, I love that we're, you know, going down this route because in a world, you know, thinking back to that concept of political economy and the way that society gets structured and the way that uh, culture works, right? So I like to think about policy in two buckets of categories. One is formal policy. So these are things that are legislated or written down. They're in a handbook. They're mm-hmm. ratified and agreed upon. Mm-hmm. Even if you deny me the things that are there, I, there's some body or group of people that I can go to and yell and be like, you didn't give me the thing. And right. The thing, and I can, <laughs> yeah. right. Informal policy is trickier and where a lot of the nuance of our demise, I think, as a, as a country is really nestled. And these are the things that are not legislated nor written down, but are practiced so regularly that if you took an academic approach through research, you could codify and call a, a, a thing and stand it up with, with data. So as an example, unequal pay for women, that's not legislated or written down in any group. It's not in a handbook. We got decades of data and people get to still act like, I don't, I didn't know. I don't, oh my God. Oh. It's implicit bias, right? And yeah. so even the way organizing the stories around DEI and yeah. sharing the science around social cognitive bias, you know, I, I someone said once recently, uh, and it was interesting because they, they reversed it by the end after I explained some, this whole thing to them. They were like, oh, Michael, that's a jarring statement. But what I say is there's a lot of snake oil salespeople in this DEI work. Mm-hmm. And it's messy, and I'm on a rampage. Like, no, 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 no. We're gonna clean this up. This is hard. Everything's not implicit bias, and mm-hmm. everything's not explicit bias. A lot of things are somewhere in the middle, and they got this thing popping off with this mechanism. It's it's being right. human is complex, but we don't realize the easy pathways out that we are giving very powerful institutions that we are giving people that that might not even be powerful, but want to actively engage in hateful activities and harmful things against other people, we're giving them an easy out by being like, oh, it was implicit, but I just didn't know. No, you didn't know. You were aware. Yeah. You were aware you didn't want to hire those black people. You were aware you didn't want to let the mothers have time off. You knew you you paid, you knew you paid that woman less than her colleague. Like you knew that. Right. Oh my gosh. But don't get me wrong. Some things can be, you can see it and not see it. That is a- Of course, of course. Or you can just accept that that's the way it is. Right. Without thinking about it. And so so what does that mean in terms of developmentally informed? Does it mean that you understand that those you sort of can't unsee those things once you see them? So what it means is that policy exists in these two places. Mm -hmm. Right. And we have to going back to the root of dehumanization. Right. Mm -hmm. We're rooted in that space and we're socialized to it. Uh, The metaphor I'll give you is like. A fish doesn't know it's out of water. Excuse me, it's in water till it's out of water. Right, right. right. The water's just there. You're just in it. You're mm-hmm. just doing your thing, right? And that's that's where we're at. So to become developmentally informed means that you're taking a step back to go, I don't understand fully what it means to think about the well-being of all of the residents of this country in the context of policymaking, be right. it formal or informal. And that or or the employees of this organization. Right. Right. Or and the members right. of this group. 
the people on my block, right? Like mm-hmm. <laughs> the parents at my school. And if I don't, in per- if I don't intentionally and purposefully engage in a learning journey, both of the experiences of the people that are here, but also from the end of going back to my own language, the mechanics of our humanity, I will probably end up making lots of mistakes in crafting policy procedures and practices, even with my good heart and my great intentions. Mm-hmm. This is why the, again, I call it the mythos of goodness mm-hmm. and the mythos of good intention and mm-hmm. their inappropriateness as metrics. Right, right. So where does that concept of narrative intelligence that piqued my interest fall in this? Is this about how we open our eyes to to the stories that we hear, the stories that we tell? Talk to us a little bit about that and how that fits into what you're talking about. So... I'm going to give you a couple of major buckets. Um, it might feel like a fire hose to folks, but I'm going to try to keep it like, here's a thing, here's a thing, here's a thing. This is about digging in mm-hmm. over time. Mm-hmm. So let's take the idea, and I'm trying to string things along for people and scaffold this through the whole conversation. Hopefully folks are picking that part up. When we think about being developmentally informed in the context of the recognition that dehumanization is a thing, We have to also consider that over the last 20 to 30 years, we've learned a lot about human beings. Technology has afforded us the opportunity to do all kinds of interdisciplinary research, observing brains in real time. I mean, there's just so much Mm -hmm. we can do that -hmm. wasn't available 100 years ago. So we're fighting a narrative fight around what it means to be human. Yes. And it's not, we're, we're not doing a good job with the science that we have that we can stand on and go, no, 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 there's no, you don't get options there, actually. That's not why we, that doesn't need to be an argument, actually. From a policy standpoint, that's just a, that's just a fact. Mm-hmm. Right. But the narrative fight is over facts right now, which mm-hmm. is a little bizarre, but it's okay because we're human and we're figuring it out. So in this context of being developmentally informed and thinking about adolescence, Biology says adolescence now ends at the earliest between the ages of 24 and 26. There are a number of policies across a number of sectors that are completely inappropriate developmentally. I don't even, I'll spare us going down the rabbit hole and naming all of them, but I think people probably have some that are coming to mind. But our expectation management, the stories we tell ourselves about 18 to 26 year olds is going to have to dramatically shift. Yes. And so in that context, narrative intelligence would allow us to interrogate what stories have formed our larger thoughts and opinions, the narratives that we believe about 18 or 26 year olds. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we would we should also do really quickly is differentiate between a story and a narrative. A narrative is a about a big idea, big concepts, values, ways of understanding and seeing about, uh, excuse me, seeing something in the world, a particular thing or concept, large groups of people even. A story is a particular instance of a situation or a thing that backs the narrative up. So mm-hmm. a fantastic metaphor I read online 
was using a string of pearls and a necklace as the example and saying that a story is an individual pearl on the necklace. The whole necklace is the narrative. Right. So when you think about something like the American dream, there are a ton of stories. From That's Michael, the narrative. Yeah. Right. And mm -hmm. Oprah is a story there. And, you know, pick whatever migrant from whatever country. Yeah, Ellis in. Island is the story there. Yeah, all of it. So mm -hmm. All of that is uh, playing a role in how we understand and believe and work with the American dream in this country and what narrative intelligence is about, because there's this AI version of narrative intelligence, which starts to, I won't say it's a version, it's one aspect of narrative intelligence where we are in real time recording what people say and analyzing it. Like they can do sentiment analysis to figure out like based on the language you're using, what are the emotional potential underpinnings and things that are there? Or what kinds of things might you be framing in your language to get someone to kind of move in a particular direction or not? Or I mean, there's all kind of analysis you can run there. But the other side of narrative intelligence is that humans have organized through story for millennia, arguably since we've been human with one another, and it does shape your mental models, your worldviews. It will shape how you see things, how you understand things. That's why bias from an academic perspective is called social cognitive bias. The narratives and stories and interpretations of the world that you've been nested in mm -hmm. since birth that are coming through multiple dimensions. Remember, things that are close and proximal, things that are distant. Close and proximal, stories in your household, stories in your neighborhood, mm -hmm. family stories. Distant, but close because of technology for us. This is tricky. Right. Media, right? right. When everything right. was just in a book and everybody couldn't read 300 years ago. Right. Well, this is distant. why, you know, this is why the 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 specialization, for lack of a better word, the fragmentation of media is so important because there used to just be radio, right? There used to just be your neighbors, right? And then radio and then movies and then TV had three, used to have three networks. That was it. That's where you got all your information. Now there's thousands of cable channels. There's millions of YouTube channels. There's however many bazillion podcasts out there. Like this, the places where we're getting those narratives and those stories is, has just exponentially grown. And, and that's where uh, on the one hand, that's beautiful to amplify so many different voices. On the other hand, we get into a situation where our country is now where people believe the truth of the source that they trust, the one yeah. that that is just like them. Yeah. And now we don't now we don't have a shared a shared agreement on what is truth and what is fiction. And so it, is is narrative intelligence like as a skill, narrative intelligence, part of being able to discern and be aware of and be critical of the stories that you're hearing, where they're coming from? Who's telling them? I think so. Okay. And I'd also include something called media literacy, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yes. A lot, again, you you heard me say before, I'm all about Venn diagram circles. So much <laughs> of our humanity is found in the intersections yeah. of things, of multiple things, as mm -hmm. opposed to verticals, right? Like, that's right. just not how life works, whether it's again, vegetative or whether it's human, whether it's just mammalian, it doesn't matter. More things are connected than they are these clear verticals. So yes, the, the idea of narrative 
narrative intelligence does include, I think healthy sense of narrative intelligence does include media literacy, right? Mm -hmm. And it should, particularly mm -hmm. for all of the nuances you just named, because there are good and bad outcomes outcomes connected to and outputs connected to this ubiquity of, of the of the presence of media channels that could healthily challenge some of the things that existed before because when you go back in time to what you were talking about where like there were these agreed upon truths and it was harder to get in there and break things up i mean th these agreed upon truths that black people were three-fifths of a person right that indigenous americans didn't deserve mm -hmm. to be here we could and, just they, grab and they weren't in your neighborhood so you didn't hear their stories you didn't hear those narratives and so you made assumptions about them yes and that's a fantastic mm -hmm. point i often tell my clients clients, uh, you know, once we're going through our scaffolded learning process to get to design, it's like you got to be cognizant of the fact that you will meet narratives and stories about groups of people before you ever meaningfully engage in relationship with them. And mm. you, there, there's I read a lot on the science of the imagination and imaginative faculty, and there's a whole lot there that is fascinating. But this is what pushed me into like policy has to be developmentally appropriate. We need new design mechanisms for how to even iterate policy and get it out and shift it towards mm -hmm. being, you know, human focused in a particular kind of way that can honor everyone's humanity. And, and I'll stop there with this. And this is why narrative intelligence also matters and the interrogation of the mental model that you have or mental models that you have if, of the world and of people. There's this woman, Eleonora Mitt, fascinating researcher. She's looked at uh, imagination in a couple of different contexts and she studies a, a lot in this area that's fascinating. But one of the things that she's picked up in the nuance of her research is that it looks as if things that are closer to you be they physical, psychological, or like social, relational, you will imagine more, you tend to imagine more with pictures around those things than things that are distant from you in any of those categories. So it's interesting because identity can make it hard to empathize in that context. Mm -hmm. We'll start to empathize with words and ideas in that context. And pictures in the mind have a much more emotional, visceral, physiological mm -hmm. impact on the brain and body. What's fascinating there though is like, if empathizing or trying to put yourself and imagine yourself in my shoes to try to create policy that's going to help me in an area that you have no touch point with, that might be difficult in a particular kind of way. But the flip side is if you can imagine the terror that a black person, for example, might exact on your life, though you've never grown up around a black person, if that feels close to you psychologically, close to you socially, even though it might not be close to you physically, your body, this conjecture, but it seems like it's primed to imagine that with a picture. So mm -hmm. imagining my well-being through policy is going to be in words predominantly. Imagining me as a threat because of the way in particular media works, right? Visuals around these things, the whole nine, you're going to be more prone to have a visceral picture-based reaction to that kind of stuff that mm. might might not even have words connected to it. Mm. You have more symbols for things than you have words. Right. Being, which is fascinating. So you could feel things and see things, not have words, but your behavior. Right. Suit, right. Right. And I think this leads us into... Um, a good discussion about 
we talked about this before we started recording the events that unfolded in Buffalo a few mm-hmm. weeks ago and the tragic murder of many innocent people based on the color of their skin mm-hmm. by an 18 year old, what, what appears to be an 18 year old white nationalist, white supremacist. And I mentioned to you that I saw, I, I saw so much on social media around the fact, well, first of all, he's 18. Secondly, people conjecturing or people wondering what were the stories told to this boy that led him to these actions? What were the narratives that shaped him? And as a mom of an eight-year-old, understanding how easy it is to shape your children with narratives, it, it can take a minute to teach love or hate with an answer to a question. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my son, when he was three or four, was in the back of our car and asked me why at his daycare, his friend had two moms. Mm-hmm. And my answer was families come in all shapes and sizes. There's two moms, there's two dads, there's a mom and dad, there's one dad, there's one mom. Families are all about love. And at three or four, he said, okay. And just took that as truth. And that's how easy it is to teach love or the opposite, teach hate. And so there's been a lot of conversation about, to your point earlier, about the mind of an 18 to a 26-year-old. What is, what is the role of the narratives that young people are being told as they grow up of adults that are, that are hearing new narratives and subscribing to them without any, like you said, close experience with those groups of people? Yeah. Couple of things in this area, right? One, I want to recognize what you said that this 18 year old is a boy. Mm-hmm. He is a developer. He's a teenager. His brain's not fully developed yet. <laughs> as much as these young black and brown boys, mm-hmm. right? And young girls, or these young folks, even, right? Not to even over genderize everybody, mm-hmm. but these young folks who are of color, who are typically ascribed adulthood very early, like 16, right? Mm-hmm. I think about Khalif, is his name Khalif Browder out of New York? Who, what a, st- at 16, it was legal in New York to put a boy, boy in jail with adults. Developmentally inappropriate, top to bottom. Mm-hmm. This is what we have to become developmentally informed, right? Mm-hmm. I want to first situate yes. that like yes. that's the thing. And so that doesn't mean this 18-year-old should not be held accountable. Right. I think that's where people get confused. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that that's not what I'm saying at all. He unfortunately did something that was absolutely heinous and he needs to be held accountable. But I think to maybe a point I'm I think you're get, we're pointing out is there is a network of people around him who are arguably even more accountable. I don't know who they are. They might not be his parents, but it's somebody and something. And there are people at varying levels of government mm-hmm. who have allowed this rhetoric at the national level for mm-hmm. decades, right? And there are people in uh, non-governmental positionality that have organized for channels to keep producing these messages in mass. It's not just a niche or niche thing. Like people want to be led to believe, right? Well, I think people want to feel like they can 
put the bad guy away and the problem will go away. They want to feel like it's that neat and tidy. Yeah. And yet, you know, you've got, you've got influential personalities spewing narratives and spewing stories that are untrue that are influencing the actions of many, many people. And they're not being held accountable for that. I mean, we can look at conservative media and just the other day, I heard someone use the analogy to this of Osama bin Laden didn't, he did not fly the planes into the world trade center. People listening to him fly their planes into the world trade center. Yet we held Osama bin Laden accountable. Yeah. So why can't we hold the other people that are inciting these acts accountable? And, and I, you know, kind of getting back to our main point, I know we're, we're going off on so many tangents, which I love, which is this idea of like the narratives that you hear shape you. And we have to be more critical of, of not critical in the, like, I hate this, but critical in the sense of discerning about where we get our information, what information we're getting, who is telling us this information and what's their motivation. And is it costing me anything? Right, right. right. I'm loop back around to that to with organizational culture and professionalism because that's yes. a place we interrogate yeah. the narrative. And, well, it's and a this is why we're weaving this in like to politics yeah, yeah, and organizations because yeah. it's all about systems of people. It's all about organizations of people, whether it's a government or it's a software company. Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> right, people ideate design and power these systems like it is a is a systems are a people-based thing Mm -hmm. that's why they speak in behaviors right because they're people-based things but with that said right one thing i'll I'll highlight and the point around the responsibility we have with narratives which is why i get into the narrative intelligence thing both from a biological kind of psychological mechanics in but then also from a systems and, and like society social ecological how does this thing work in, in in the way that humans have designed the the systems we live in replacement theory is a term being thrown around right now and people are talking about it has its roots in race suicide is literally the same concept and tell listeners what what you mean by that yeah so race suicide was an ideology replacement theory what you mean by replacement theory so replacement theory i'll explain replacement theory and race suicide at the same time at the same time yeah just just in case folks are not familiar yeah so it's this concept that there are there's a group of people or groups of people coming into the country or rising up from inside the country through population increase, and they are taking the place, the rights, the the access to well-being through jobs and they're income, taking, they're a threat, yeah. From the dominant group in power, which in this country is white people, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and it's interesting because. The history of whiteness in this country, I think a lot of white people got to really dig into that. When we're talking about race suicide, there are people who are now white that when race suicide was out as a large conversation in academic, theological and political circles and being talked about by presidents like Teddy Roosevelt. Right. Mm-hmm. And this, talk about race. It, what is race suicide? Explain that concept. Well, it's, the, it's the same concept. It's the same literal thing, just a okay. different title. Different title. Race suicide is the, the 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 actually, you know what? There is a little nuance. Race suicide is a little more specific to uh, intentionality and blame. So white 
white people were practicing waste suicide by not repopulating, women not repopulating. That's the speech that Teddy Roosevelt was giving. I should send you the link to put it in the notes, actually. Mm -hmm. It's on women and their role. <laughs> they must reproduce to increase the race because if the race decreases, you have all of these other problems with these people coming to replace you mm. and take your stuff, right? And so even the way we think about abortion laws and the attack on abortion laws being next to replacement theory and these activities, these are not isolated conversations. They've never been. We just change jargon and conversations are no longer popular because of explicit bias. Explicit bias is when I know I have a thing going on here that's for or against the thing and I'm choosing to be quiet or shift how I talk about it for PC purposes, for political correctness purposes. That doesn't change what's going on behind the scenes and where you're not being silent, where it's safe to not be silent, right? Mm -hmm. So what we have is replacement theory having its root and race suicide, that was a very popular idea, again, across all platforms and spaces, and it never went away. And here it is. I remember listening to Donald Trump on his first campaign trail. I've been reading on eugenics for a long time because of its relationship to educational uh, systems and the testing and all mm -hmm. of that. And, and so I had this, I always thought it was random knowledge until I heard things coming out of Donald Trump's mouth that I was like, Whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. That's like textbook. Mm -hmm. Like I can go pick that up out of a number of passages. Oh, oh, eugenics didn't leave as a concept. Those beliefs, the cultural underpinnings, those narratives are not gone. And I started to think about the way that they talk about Mexicans and labor. I spent a lot of time um, working with, well, I would say a lot. I spent on and off 40 years working with migrant farm working children in Florida and getting to know their parents through this great program down there called Infamilia. This is in Homestead, Florida in the Everglades. Program, uh, a nonprofit Infamilia partnered with a group out of New York called A Step Artist Driving in Poverty. And we would go down and do these camps for the kids, there's free arts camps and whatnot. But I would learn about the, the plight there and the lived experience. And also get exposed to the rhetoric from conservative media, from conservative research think tanks. And I'm just like, wait, no, wait, this isn't even based in reality, right? The Federal Reserve Bank in that region was actively printing out stuff to challenge the misinformation around like the mics were supposedly sucking up benefits. They were, Actually, that's not true. Here's the data, right? So here I am like in this world, like what is happening? And again, in here looping back around, you, you hear this rhetoric, you see it lining up and it's like, oh, this has been the move since the late 1880s and the beginnings of economics as a, as a discipline. Right. And academic study. Oh, boy. So much in there. Um, <laughs> so, you know, like I said, we're dancing between very, very political and cultural um, issues and also bringing it down to the organizational level. How do these concepts relate to the future of work? Yeah, this is good. Let's go back to professionalism. Because those, I think those are the spheres most of us can control. Yeah. I mean, we can control the political spheres by voting, by getting involved. I don't want to leave anybody with I the perception that. that they can't control that. But more immediately, yes, we we can we can start this movement of rehumanizing our systems and our policies in the places where we work. 
Yeah. So talk to us about how these concepts relate to the future of work and, and hopefully the optimistic view in your, I hope, what I hope is an optimistic view in your opinion. Yeah, and I have, you know, it's funny for all of this analysis, I have a ton of optimism here. And I, I, sometimes I don't even know why, but I do. Well, you know, I'll tell you why I do. Because humans have been along, around on this planet longer than capitalism, right? We've been on this planet longer than racism. We've been on this planet longer than a lot of the atrocities that we've organized. And don't get me wrong. They're still bad. Died, right? Like we, there's, we've yeah. been in war. We've been doing war for a long time, right? We're also violent, but yeah. we we have a beautiful side to us that we could be investing in more and more and more. And so this is about conscious evolution now, right? We have technology that is compounding how fast the species can and does evolve um, with intentionality. And now, with intention, with consciousness, we can be better and quicker, right? And for generations to come do something that is probably unparalleled in the history of our species unless you know this is us repeating a cycle maybe we were more technical technologically advanced twenty thousand years ago and we ruined the world or something right <laughs> anyway all that being said i go back to professionalism I, I noted that before i want to bring it down to something really micro and thinking and, and stringing together the dehumanization the narrative intelligence piece and what we can do one of the things I do with clients all the time that are interested in, like, how do we shift our hiring practices to be more equitable? How do we think about upward mobility in a more equitable manner? I have people dig into their narratives and beliefs. So narratives, I, I help people translate a little bit and go like, what's the big idea, big message, big belief here about professionalism? Right. Let's that's right. That you for you. Let's mm -hmm. write this down. What are the stories that back that up? For you, yeah. And then I say, where did those things come from? Because mm. none of us are born no. understanding professionalism. We learned that. Yeah. And so this is a practice of what I call compassionate interrogation. Mm -hmm. We're going to use narrative intelligence to dig into what's there. And this gets into this issue of the nature of implicit bias. If it's implicit, that means that it's unconscious. That means that it. there's two main things I'll point out here. One, you can't like actively just be like, I'm gonna know all my biases and list out all my implicit biases. Like that's not, it's not possible. Mm -hmm. the, the flip side of that is even when you might touch it, it's not gonna feel like bias. It's gonna feel like something else. Mm -hmm. And it's probably gonna feel right. Mm -hmm. And so you're not like the right. they did it, naturally fall into this space of finding all your biases and making a You know what's change? so interesting about this is this is the this is the the conflict between generations in the workplace as well. You know, so I, I'm reading, you know, so many articles. I mean, I was so hopeful to read all about, you know, and research all about what Gen Z is trying to do, millennials are trying to do to change the way we work, to change corporate culture for the better, to make make demands that we, you know, Gen X earlier than me, were too afraid to ask for, or just didn't know we could ask for. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so they are demanding a new kind of workplace, a new kind of culture. They're also changing the, the rule, the, the, well, it's always been done in this way, professionalism. I was just reading an article the other day about what is professional communication, Right. It, right. Because That's they're exactly a generation right. born of text and, e you know, email and WhatsApp and whatever. And they are casualizing corporate communications and it's causing this huge clash. And that's where it's like, okay, sit everybody down. 
what, why do you believe that this is more professional writing than this is right? When, when how they're writing is actually how people talk. So I just, that was just one example that popped into my head as you were talking about these things that are, this is what I always talk about in my empathy talks. We, the workplace culture, professionalism, whatever is not a law of physics. It's a human (laughs) construct that we created. And so we can change it for the better if we want to. And so I think, I feel like that's what you're saying is that there's these things that we never, there's, there's many things that we don't think about how we got there. And we just assume it is a law of physics that it just, it is, and it doesn't have to be. Absolutely. And to that point, uh, you know, looping back around and what does it cost you? Mm -hmm. There's so many people that when I, we go through that journey and then I get to that point of like, and what did is there any potential that it cost you something? People are like, you know what? Actually, that was so stressful when I was 24 and I da 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 and it made me hate this. And then all this stuff just starts coming up to things that yeah. are even more recent that they just didn't have the liberty to give voice to, right? right? But it was there. And so it's interesting. So and to your point, people are communicating the way that they communicate for the purposes of solving whatever problem they're supposed to solve. If it's working, does that mean it's unprofessional? Uh, listen, that doesn't mean we should be at work calling, you know, just throwing an F-bomb Cursing each other out, yeah. <laughs> clearly there's some limits here, but we can figure out what that means right. and what those things are. Right. But that, don't have to I think the point is that can, yeah, and I think the point is that can change over time. It's okay. It's okay for that evol- to evolve. Because again, it's not a law of physics. It's a human construct. <laughs> and into the, the, that idea of the human constructs, right? We do, we are biologically driven to do us and them, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's actually the hard part about making sense of our humanity and looking at the nuances of informal policy. Because if it wasn't race, it'd be something else. If it wasn't gender identity, it'd be something else. We could all be the same skin color. It'd be the, do you have freckles or not, right? Like mm-hmm. it would it would, yeah. it would be- are, are you a Yankees or Red Sox fan? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Something, right? <laughs> and then that context with us and them, even in this professionalism context, it's so interesting to hear things about professional communication and that's just the way things are done. And if you want to build a thing like this, you got to da 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 da. And I'm like, well, that's interesting because the higher up I climb the ladder, it's interesting where the conversations are happening. I'm seeing more business deals over beers and on a golf course. And you don't, the, the language is not professional. You know, fill in the blank. So, <laughs> So it's interesting that even in that yeah. context, there's a little bit of like, you know, us and theming, mm-hmm. but you, you to your elders probably are doing what you think we're doing, right? And, but this is also generational and it happens. It happens so all the time, yeah. Step out of it and to your point, we can just be a little more inclusive and try something different. Right, exactly. All right, as we wrap up, can you tell folks about the Empathy Lab? Because we're going to have a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah, your project. Are okay. Then I got to get you the right deck because that one's a little more geared toward. (laughs) I'll get you the right link. Okay, great. That was a little more geared towards funders, but the the thing here with Empathy Lab, Empathy Lab is the name is going to change because a simple Google search let me know that trademark is going to be hard. Yeah, but Empathy, the goal behind Empathy Lab is a place to practice and interrogate the notion of empathy as a practice. Right. And it's a it's a space to drive meaningful change and to engage in a true change management process that 
undergirds, whether it's DEI, REI, belonging in this at work, whatever language people want to use, it's rooted in this idea of exploring the mechanics of our humanity, exploring a lot of the ideas you heard today, doing practical design work in that space, learning some skills and methodologies that you can take back with you to the workplace to both start the compassionate interrogation journey and the intentional change, the intentional design mm-hmm. that's, that's needed to result in belonging this. This is where mm-hmm. inclusion and, is an activity. You gotta do stuff. Yeah. And to get back to, you know, full circle center humanity in our work. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Okay. You have a diverse workforce and you don't we're not all taught to socialize to each other and our needs, our right. own needs. <laughs> like, right. A lot. Right. So, Empathy Lab is a six-month-long, the big version of Empathy Lab, or the full version, we call it, six months, bi-weekly, you get these sessions that are learning and design-based, you come in teams from from an employer, um, and outside of those sessions, every other time we're not in session, any individual can have office hours with a coach on our team, and then each team gets six hours of consulting work afterwards with us, and it's a, it's a fun but challenging process people stay in touch with us we did the full version and we still got clients that came out of that or people that just hit us up they're like what are you up to that's awesome learn more. you know it's been great awesome. and we're doing so we'll a small have, version now too we'll have a link to that for folks as well mike oh my god what a great conversation thank you, thank you. for yeah, this- i want I, I could talk to you for like i always say this to my guests i could talk to you for three more hours but um we're gonna have all your links in the show notes but for folks on the go where's the best place that they can find out more about this work yeah human nature with one n so h-u-m-a-n-a-t-u-r-e dot works dot w-o-r-k-s human nature dot works that's our website i love it all right mike thank you so much for your time today Thank you so much. It's a fantastic conversation. Thank you. And thank you everyone for listening to another episode of the Empathy Edge podcast. If you love it, share it, rate and review it. We love those. And until next time, please remember that cash flow, creativity, and compassion are not mutually exclusive. Take care and be kind. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Empathy Edge. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to share the show with others who want to redefine success and change the game. For more on how empathy makes you and your brand more successful, visit TheEmpathyEdge.com. There, you can download a free guide outlining five business benefits of empathy and a free sample chapter of Maria's book, The Empathy Edge. Until next time, remember that a more empathetic world starts with you and leads to tremendous success. Success.